Hello and welcome to Bold and Brazen. I'm Mary Ann Stewart, a designer and creator in Lexington, Massachusetts. I'm thrilled you're here. This is the show where I share my love of fabric and design, fashion and style, education and history, and where that all intersects with sustainability and the environment, politics and policy, and the economy. Some of the episodes will feature interviews with people from a range of industries, sewists and makers, editors and artisans, farmers and ranchers, architects and sustainability professionals, and so much more. Thank you for joining me today. I'm so happy you're here. Hey friends, welcome to another episode of Bold and Brazen. It's Mary Ann, two names, no E. Thank you so much for listening. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm coming to you from my studio in Lexington, Massachusetts, where it has been four straight days of 75 degree weather. We almost never get four straight days of the same weather, so that means we're overdue for a change, but it has been amazing to have this gorgeous weather in November uh, to see the beautiful blue clear skies and the russet leaves on the trees. It's it's magical. It's still magical, um, but I'm, I'm going to enjoy it for as long as it lasts. So let's see. When last we met, I was talking to you on our election day, which was uh, to last Tuesday, November 2nd. And the results, uh, as you probably all know, are that we have a new president-elect in Joe Biden and a new vice president-elect in Kamala Harris, the first woman elected to this position, which is amazing. And the thing that's so great about it is that these uh, people represent policies going forward that are really going to have a good impact. We can actually work with this administration to try and make changes in the laws and regulations and the policies that we need to see that are going to help protect our environment and also make changes for the climate crisis that we're in the middle of and also the pandemic that we're in the middle of and the racial injustices that we see and of course the epic inequality that's going around and so i am really optimistic and so much of what i'm going to talk about today really uh, hinges on a lot of a lot of that you know it turns out that you can go to JoeBiden.com and you can read about the plan for a clean energy revolution and environmental justice, where in fact, uh, he includes some good language on decarbonizing the food and agricultural sector and leveraging agriculture to remove carbon dioxide from the air, pull it down and store it in the ground as is described so beautifully in the film I talked about last time, Kiss the Ground. And you can see the trailer at kissthegroundmovie.com. You can also rent that film for a dollar at kissthegroundmovie.com. 
You can also stream it if you are a member of Netflix. Uh, that is currently streaming as well. So check out that film. It's really wonderful. As I said, it's very hopeful and very optimistic. And so when last we met last week, I was talking about that film and also about Fibershed, Fibershed the book, Fibershed the vision, Fibershed the 501c3 nonprofit, and Fibershed the movement. And in this episode, I want to continue working through some of what is in Fibershed the book by talking about that first chapter in there, which is the cost of our clothes. And so just to recap a little bit from the previous episode, you can also go back and listen to it, but just to recap a little bit, Rebecca Burgess, who wrote the book Fibershed, she begins with this description of her journey that began in 2010 to create and wear a wardrobe for one year that was completely sourced from locally grown fibers and natural dyes within a 150 mile radius from her front door. She also wanted local labor to produce these items. And those laborers she found in herself and in new and old friends and in members of her family. And so this book, which is so wonderful, she really discusses this um, this project that she underwent for herself grew into a vision for cultivating fiber sheds across, well, it's turned into a global movement, so it's awesome. But, you know, expanding on this idea of um, fiber sheds, which like the slow food movement that preceded it, uh, it began small and it's expanded into more than 50 fiber sheds across North America, the UK, Europe, and Australia. And so now we're talking about a holistic vision of farming and raising plants and animals for fiber, for food, and or for natural dyes. And that there's an urgency for this um, and to capture carbon from the atmosphere and draw it down plants will draw it down into the ground for food for microorganisms and also for complex root systems and um it's it's she does a great job of you know the book is full of um great stories you know sort of a history of uh, the use of synthetic and chemical dyes. She talks about the history, a brief history of clothing. Um, and there's some statistics in the book as well. And I'm not an expert, but these kinds of statistics really move me because I am an advocate and an activist. And I do want to change. I want to see our laws and regulations and policies changed for the better. And so I'm educating myself through this whole process uh, to get um, more conversant on these ideas so that I can then take it up with my Congress people and my local, my state uh, uh, elected officials as well, because these have uh, state consequences, but also certainly global consequences, but, um, you know, federal consequences as well. And we need to scale up our advocacy efforts to really make the change. And I think coming off of this um, national election where we see the power of getting engaged and being activists and and real citizens uh, not in the 
you know, citizens in the civics sense where we are really exercising our political civic muscles. And this is so important going forward. So, so I, I, I want to just uh, note a few of the statistics that are outlined in the book and many, you know, uh, I'll put these in show notes because uh, if you're like me and you listen to podcasts on the go, um, it's not usually very convenient to look up some link while you're listening, you know, to pause and look it up. But very often I'll be sitting down later and looking something else up and I can go back and refer to the notes. So I'm going to put them in uh, in the show notes. But some of these statistics come from the Ellen MacArthur Foundation and also from Elizabeth Klein. Elizabeth Klein wrote the book uh, Overdressed and also uh, Conscious Closet. And she's been an ethical consumer for more than 20 years. And she just wrote a piece about the impact of the pandemic on her sort of ethical consumerist approach. And now she's kind of changing. She's definitely changing away from that because she sees the value of becoming more of a fashion activist and a political uh, consumer activist than trying to uh, prevail upon the fashion industry to make change because it really puts much more the onus on individuals to do the consumer ethical shopping and values aspect of our of our wardrobes when in fact um, no one needs to feel guilty about that too many there's been too much uh, policy making and regulation that makes it very difficult I think the biggest thing we should be focused on is buying less, whatever it is, just we don't need to be consuming as much as we have been consuming and encouraged to consume by so many companies. But I digress. So I want to go back to some of these statistics I started talking about. So, and I mentioned some of these before. Um, In the 1960s, 95% of our garments were made in the United States right here. And then by the 1990s, 50% of our garments were made in the U.S. In 2012, we were already down to 2%. 2% of the garments made in the United States. And you might ask, why is that? And some of it has to do with the trade policies of the 1990s. That would be NAFTA, which resulted in lower manufacturing costs and um, a lessening of the pollution controls that so many of us had come to expect by the outsourcing, by by um, manufacturing to um, other countries, China, India, uh, Asia, Indonesia, all these, you know, sort of um, China and, and Southeast Asia and Asia. And uh, so much of that also has resulted in this phenomenon uh, known as fast fashion, where the average person in 2015, as Elizabeth Klein points out, was buying 60% more garments than back in 2000. And then they were keeping them for half as long. So clearly that's the argument around uh, slowing down the purchasing of things, learning to take care of the things. And because so much of it was fast fashion, which really was not focused on having high quality items made to last, Many times after just a few wearings, these articles would fall apart and not be very uh, presentable. And even if you stitch them up again, uh, they still didn't, they just weren't 
very good quality and they, you know, continue to fall apart. And so, um, you know, when Greenpeace is weighing in on fashion, you know, the shit's getting real and Greenpeace um, has said, you know, that by treating clothes as disposable items, fashion has become a novelty and the commercialism and the marketing of fashion is leading to overconsumption and materialism and keeping our clothes and cherishing them just isn't fashionable any longer. That's true. Um, so you know, we need to be buying less. We need to be buying when we do buy to buy better, buy better quality. We also need to um, get uh, learn skills that are going to help us to maintain our, our garments for a longer period so we can make them last. And we also can learn to make more. We can learn to sew and knit and refashion and mending is such a big piece of all of that. Um, I can get into more of that in a little bit. Um, so one of the things that has been um, that, that Rebecca Burgess talks about in the book is um, the fashion industry is number two in, and I've actually seen this in, in several places. Actually, I'm not sure if I saw it in, in the Fibershed book, but the fashion industry is number two in pollution and waste. And that's number two to the oil and petroleum industry. And that's huge. And then um, what we, you know, when we go into our closets, many times we are just trying to look for something to wear. We're not thinking about, and even when we go shopping, we're not thinking about what the ingredients are that are that our clothes are made of. Maybe we'll, you know, maybe we'll see it's a linen garment or it's a, a fiber, you know, we'll see what the fiber content is, but we don't know what the finishes are. We don't know what the dyes are. We don't know what they are. We're putting them on our skin. So there's a lot to think about when the clothing that's going out and the ingredients are not checked and we don't know what they are. And that almost never happens with our food. Um, and so when we think about how what we wear is important, the health costs that are associated with the production and the wearing and the disposal of our garments is very seldom considered. Um, and there are no regulations around those issues either, even though there are for the for the food production component of the agriculture and plant uh, nature of things, but not for the plant and animal uh fiber content for, for clothing. So when you think about the creation of textiles, including cotton farming, which consumes nearly 25 trillion gallons of water annually, and 20% of fresh water pollution around the planet is attributed to the dyeing and treatment of garments. Um, we talked about some of the labor conditions, and I've addressed this in a previous episode as well, um, textile sweatshops and things. And, you know, poor labor conditions are exacerbated by our clothing consumption. We talked, um, I mentioned before, and there's a good summary in Rebecca's book about the Rana Plaza disaster of 2013, when um, so many people were killed uh, in this collapse of this this garment building um i think there were five or six floors and over 1100 people were killed and many thousands were injured as well 
and so there is a new uh, a new website I'll also link to in show notes called Pay Up Fashion. There is well, there it's for you to be aware of. I just heard that the um, that the consumer activism um, that has engaged this petition to sign for fair wages for the garment workers that were laid off as a result of the pandemic and they were not paid for articles that were already sewn and and shipped, um, they weren't getting paid. So this was a, a petition to get that going. And I believe that that has already been, um, that, that the co corporations who are on the hook to pay them have agreed to pay them or some of them have. So, uh, but anyway, you can go to payupfashion.com and it, this is a movement to reform fashion, and you can sign the petition to pay garment workers their fair wages. Uh, I believe that if the petition is still up, um, maybe they haven't uh, <laughs> concluded this event. But in any case, it is a it's an awesome website. It's got lots of information there, so definitely check that out. And so um, maybe you've heard of some of the the couple of brands that are most closely identified with fast fashion, and that's H&M and Zara and Primark. And they produce, uh, Zara and H&M together produce 1 billion items of clothing a year, uh, a large portion, which are just thrown away after only a few wearings. And then if you've looked into any of um, any of the issues around charity donations of clothing. Many times you'll box up or bag up clothing to drop off at Goodwill or somewhere. And just only 15% of used clothing is actually um, recycled. The bulk of it ends up in landfills and um, much of it is shipped off to third world countries and gets tangled up in their own manufacturing a competition for their own manufactured items and things, and then ends up in their landfills. And there's just not a lot of uh, sense in that either. So, um, and then there's a good discussion of, when you think about the fact that petroleum-based, oil-based fibers, that's what polyester is, are um, take uh, around 200 years to break down, you know, and they're ending up in these landfills. It's huge waste. Um, you consider the Paris Agreement uh, with non um, one of the, you know, some of the climate goals are really around reducing the carbon footprint and things. They're very specific ideas here. And um, non-oil-based fibers come with a cost as well. Rayon, these are cellulose-based and viscose and bamboo. They require processes that are huge that are hugely toxic very toxic and very damaging to people and in addition the microfibers that are released released in some of those um, fleece clothing uh, which are microplastics they end up there have been studies by numerous groups uh, among them the university of california santa barbara's bren school of environment environmental science and management who investigated um, the scope and impact of the issue of microfibers released in uh, washing in washing machine water, which ended up in 40% uh, of them ended up in rivers, lakes, and oceans. And then there are separate studies that examine the pollution in the ocean and fish and things, and just 
it's incredible. Um, but it's a, it is a big problem and it's not like you can filter out microfiber plastic. Uh, it's a huge cost to do that and it's not, a, not very effective. So they concluded, this is what the Bren School uh, concluded. It was too expensive and shouldn't be considered a strategy to mitigate the pollution. And um, so there's a lot uh, for us to think about. Uh, Rebecca Burgess goes through a brief history of clothing. It's a lovely historical uh, look of, you know, um, how... Uh, human history started, you know, how Homo sapiens roughly began wearing clothing and sort of uh, how all of that kind of came up through the ages. But I'll start with, and I've said it before in other places, um, Instagram and, and uh, Facebook among them. But when we start looking at the textile industry such as it was uh, in the early days over here in the United States when we were the 13 colonies beginning in 1619 in the early um, 1600s, you can't even begin to have this record, you can't really even have this conversation uh, without starting with a study, begin, without beginning with the study of the slave trade and then uh, understanding that the system of enslavement built the economies of many nations, including the United States and the agricultural economy of the 17th and 18th centuries here and the Southern cotton economy of the 19th century, which ultimately dominated two thirds of the world cotton market and accounted for 70% of the raw material that fueled Britain's industrial revolution. Um, the United States textile economy up through the Industrial Revolution was really a product of slavery, colonization, and then later deregulation. And um, the Industrial Revolution, of course, up until up before that time, and uh, really all of the textiles were and clothing were made from natural fibers, animal fibers, and um, natural dyes. But then when they discovered the aniline dyes of the mid-1800s, that process began to, you know, it just made it easier to scale up and industrialize and bring in greater and greater profits um, through this industry. And, and that has brought us to, <laughs> that was the beginning of sort of where we ended up with uh, today. And so this, um, you know, when you think about natural dyes, which are so perfect for unique um, one-offs and because, you know, you get the natural dyes are much smaller scale. Plants are made, you know, they are usable primarily once a year, you know, at, during their regular cycles of, of use, of growth and flowering. If you're using flowers, many of them are used for printing. Many of the dyes... Um, the the animal the plant fibers and the plant products the the nuts and the seeds and the flowers are produced just one time a year so it's a limited window for using these things which is perfect for artisanal um, studios and things but it makes it very challenging right so this is why it's so cool to read about Rebecca's 150 mile radius um, you know use for plants and animals and, and dyes. So it's very cool reading. Um, 
just to, you know, as I said, the dyes, the chemical dyes don't break down easily. They are not easily biodegradable and they persist in our waterways. And there are absolutely um, unhealthy effects when you consider that our skin is our largest organ and these materials are, these chemicals are then absorbed through our skin and brought through our bloodstream, affecting not only our um, blood but and organs, but also our lymphatic systems and our endocrine systems. So there's certainly every reason to be concerned and be much more aware of what we're putting on our skin. And as I said before, the first step is to wear our clothes longer. Somebody was suggesting to me we should wear each article at least 30 times. That's a challenge I threw out there. <laughs> and even to the point of wearing them out completely. Um, so using uh, slow cloth by knitting your own, sewing your own, mending your own, um, choosing to do clothing swaps as a way of moving your clothing around instead of donating it uh, to a, um, a donation charity, uh, pass it on to people that you know, which is a cool thing to do. So I'll just wrap this up by saying that we do need to exercise our critical thinking skills. First, let's buy less and let's buy better quality. And when we have our clothing items, make them last, learn to sew, learn some skills for mending, sew on the buttons, um, and then learn to make more, learn to sew and knit articles of, of clothing. Socks, socks are fun, a challenge to do. And then, then we have to be organized for the policies that we need. So not only to exercise critical thinking skills, but um, looking at consumer rights and question the laws and regulations that are out there and bring greater trans corporations need to bring greater transparency into their process so that the consumers, so that we individuals can see where things are made, what they are made of, and then uh, demanding transparency so that they can, um, so they need to make these changes and we can understand where things are coming from and what's in, what the ingredients are that are in the clothing that we're putting next to our skin. I am excited about the next um, few years. Uh, our democracy may be in tatters and we need to not only mend our relationship with our clothes, but through that mending process, hopefully we can mend our democracy as well. So with that, I will uh, wrap this up today. And I thank you so much for listening. Until next time, take good care. This episode of Bold and Brazen has been brought to you by Fresh Circle, my eco-fashion business focused on people and the planet. Check it out on Etsy or FreshCircle.com. That's F-R-E-S-H-C-E-R-C-L-E.com. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe now for free on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Leave a rating or a review. And one more thing. 
Did you learn at least one thing in this episode? If the answer is yes, can you think of one person who would also enjoy it? Post about the show on your Instagram, tag someone who might benefit from it, and tag me too so that I can thank you and repost it. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions, just shoot me a DM on Instagram. The music for Bold and Brazen was written by Will Calante. I'm going to let it play out until the end because I think you'll really like it too. Until next time, take good care.